Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. I'm Samantha DeGrandi, Assistant Editor for the American Journal of Managed Care. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Mark Simon, the Chief Medical Officer of OB Hospitalist Group. OB Hospitalist contracts with hospitals across the United States to create OB emergency departments. The group employs more than 600 experienced OBs who are available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, to ensure that an OB is always within the hospital rather than on call. OB Hospitalist also works with hospitals to reduce costs by being an outsourced provider of obstetricians. Welcome to Manage Carecast, Dr. Simon. Can you give our listeners some background about what kind of work OB Hospitalist Group does? Sure. Thanks for having me. Um, OB Hospitalist Group is a medical network of physicians and midwives across the country that provide in-hospital obstetrical care uh, to the patients in the communities where we have our programs. Are there some statistics you're able to share with us, such as how many hospitals you're partnered with, how many deliveries, either vaginal or cesarean, emergent interventions, and successful outcomes that the group has had within the past year? So currently, we are partnering with about uh, somewhere a little over 170 programs uh, across the country. That's in 33 different states. And in the last 12 months, our OB hospitalist teams uh, saw over 427,000 uh, patient encounters and provided over 35,000 uh, deliveries in those programs. And of those encounters, more than 50,000 of those encounters were actually emergent intervention. And when you look at our statistics, you know, we track a number of quality measures and look at how our teams are performing. But when you roll that up into a national dashboard, as it were, uh, and look at some of those highly monitored metrics, uh, our company and our, our physicians do a really uh, fantastic job when it deliver, when it comes to delivering quality care to these patients. So, for example, when you look at low-risk C-section rates, uh, our national rate for the last 12 months was 18.6%, which is uh, below that the goal of 23.9 for the country. And when you look at elective inductions, we don't have any of those. We have a 0% rate of elective inductions. We have a low rate of episiotomies, and we exceed the national averages when it comes to another, uh, many other uh, quality metrics. So not only are we caring for a large number of patients across the country, we're, do- we're doing so uh, with high-quality outcomes. In your opinion, why are maternal mortality rates climbing in the United States compared with other developed nations, and what insights can you share with our listeners in terms of addressing and combating these high rates? Yeah, I think uh, the maternal mortality situation in the United States is, is, is alarming, as, as you know and as, as your listeners know. Um, it's also multifactorial, so, so there's not going to be one answer as to why uh, maternal mortality rates are, are going up in this country. There are a number of factors that contribute to that. Um, I do think there are some process and system-related issues within hospitals and the delivery of care for these women um, as far as making sure that you have the right uh, set of clinicians caring for the right complexity of patients uh, in the right setting uh, at the right time. And so there are, there are some challenges with that within our country. 
I think the other aspect that you see that I, there is no easy answer to is you have we have a very geographically dispersed nation, and we have uh, many urban areas uh, with lots of high quality healthcare facilities, and then you can get into more rural areas where it's where healthcare facilities are really spread out, which ca can cause uh, concerns for the health and safety of patients and the communities that live in those areas just because of the time and distance it requires them to travel uh, to get to these facilities. And then the other component you worry about in smaller facilities, whether that's urban or rural, this doesn't matter, but in facilities that are smaller, if they are um, not doing the same volume of activity, i.e., you know, they're not doing as many deliveries, they're not having as many high-risk uh, types of deliveries, you, you can get out of practice and, and not remember how uh, to handle those or not be prepared to handle some of those high-risk situations in a timely fashion. Now, some do a great job, some don't, but I think your, your question was what contributes, uh, potentially contributes to the rising maternal mortality, and I think, I think that's, that's a component therein. And then if you were just to look at some of the successes that we have as a country, one of those successes is that we have had uh, we've done a great job of reducing uh, teen birth rates, which is awesome. And we have also given women uh, the power uh, that they rightly deserve to control their reproductive lives. And many women are opting um, for a variety of reasons to have children later in life, which again, I think is a great thing. What comes with that is you're, you're combining that then with more chronic diseases. And so you got to make sure that you have teams and individuals, you know, clinicians, physicians, midwives, and others who are prepared to uh, manage patients who are coming uh, later in life and with more chronic conditions so that they can manage them safely. There's been a documented disparity in care when it comes to pregnant African-American mothers. What do you see as some steps the healthcare system as a whole or physicians in general can take to overcome this disparity? Yeah, so I think bias is is prevalent in in all of society, and and healthcare is no different. And physicians, being people, uh, also have implicit biases. And I think the first step that healthcare physicians, midwives, everybody needs to take is to understand what our biases are, and to acknowledge that we have them, and that having a bias in and of itself isn't a bad thing, right? I mean, it's not. We're not calling you a bad person because you have a bias. It's just recognizing that everybody, everybody, no matter what your background um, is, have, have biases. And it's acknowledging that they exist and then being active, you know, actively working to overcome those biases in these clinical situations. So that absolutely, when an African-American woman complains about her condition, she should be taken seriously, right? And and what you see, unfortunately, uh, in story after story that's out there is that uh, women of color are not being taken as seriously as someone else might be, and that's that's a shame, and that that, that shouldn't happen. And I don't think physicians in general are trying to do that. I don't think they're maliciously going out there to try to provide uh, a different level of care to people because of their backgrounds. But I do think that there are these implicit biases that exist that we need to be aware of as healthcare 
uh, as a healthcare industry and work really hard to support one another to overcome them. Can you tell our listeners about some of the benefits that OB Hospitalist Group provides not only to hospitals themselves, but to patients? Yeah, I think OB Hospitalist Group and OB Hospitalist in general provide a a significant benefit uh, to hospitals and patients. Uh, A lot of it's around safety. Uh, So having a a physician and or midwife physically present and actively engaged in the labor and delivery unit um, provides a level of safety for all patients that present there, whether or not the OB hospitalist is directly managing that care or or, or a, another clinician is. Um, we're there to respond in case there is an emergent situation and can help uh, rectify that before something uh, really bad happens. In addition, uh, we, since we as OB hospitalists are in the hospital on a regular basis, we more commonly or more frequently will encounter some of these low frequency events or, or uh, con- uh, medical events that occur for patients. And so we become a little, a little bit more experienced with them and we can support the local physicians or midwives, whoever that may be, when they encounter these events. So we can bring a little bit more recent experience and expertise with handling these medical emergencies, obstetrical emergencies, um, and work directly with the local physicians and, and their patients to provide them care. And obviously, the core responsibility of, an, of our OB hospitalist programs or any OB hospitalist program is to improve the quality of care that's delivered to the women who are at that institution. And so we want to empower women uh, to take control of their own delivery process, but do so in a way that's safe uh, for, for, for them and their baby and for their families. Um, and to be supportive of that, and to provide them the level of expertise uh, that they deserve so that they can have that safe delivery uh, and, and go home uh, with their new, new kid. How does the group work to collaborate with physicians in providing patient care? So uh, it, the, the way we work with local physicians is really um, can vary from program to program and really upon the desires and needs of that local physician or that local physician group. In general though, number one, we're always there to support them should they have an emergent situation or concern with one of their patients. So we can be that extra set of hands if they need it. Um, uh, we can provide support for difficult deliveries, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So we're, you know, so we're there to help should, should they need it. In addition, we uh, frequently see patients who present with emergent concerns. So those uh, pregnant patients who present to the hospital and think uh, something's wrong or concerned that something is wrong with their pregnancy, whatever it may be. So we can evaluate those patients, uh, you know, see them directly, work with the nursing staff to evaluate them, and then communicate those findings back to their primary obstetrician so that there's good continuity of care for that patient so the the, the physician in the community knows exactly what happened in the hospital and so they can pick up uh, right right where you know we left off once the patient returns to see them in the office setting and then some of the physicians in communities that we serve uh, choose for a variety of reasons to partner with the OB hospitalist and we actually help manage some of the labor and deliveries for those groups 
And as you can imagine, that's really beneficial for some physician groups because uh, it helps them with their work-life balance. It helps them uh, ensure that they're able to provide care to their other patients. So, for example, they could be off uh, doing a surgery for one of their uh, GYN patients. And so during that time period, perhaps the OB hospitalist is helping to manage whatever laboring patients they have and, and, and ensuring that that laboring patient is receiving safe quality care even when their primary obstetrician is unavailable because they're doing some, you know, some, some clinical care somewhere else. So there's lots of ways that we can support uh, the local physicians and midwives and communities just to be you know, an added pair of eyes and, and hands to care for their patients when they come to labor and delivery. As you know, physician burnout is becoming a larger problem across the country. Can you discuss any effects that you've seen from a hospital working with OB hospitalist group in terms of any improvement in physician burnout? Yeah, physician burnout is a, is a big issue in this country because we spend a lot of time and resources as a, com- as a society uh, to train, educate, and prepare physicians to work a long career uh, in healthcare. And unfortunately, many of them, in a lot of specialties, obstetrics being one of them, get to a point where they either choose not to continue practicing medicine at all, or very frequently within obstetrics, you'll see obstetricians stop doing deliveries uh, just because of the time constraints and, you know, deliveries happen whenever they happen. They can happen in the middle of the night. And, and obviously that, that can take a toll on the health of physicians because physicians are, are people too. And so one of the things we have definitely seen with OB hospitalist programs is you get a lot of clinicians, obstetricians who are excellent, excellent uh, obstetricians and do a great job of managing labor and doing deliveries that instead of giving up those skills and instead of getting out of the obstetrical business, they then um, transition to becoming OB hospitalists because they can continue to provide that quality care to patients in uh, segmented periods of time that, that are known and defined. And it allows, it allows them to extend their careers as obstetrical uh, uh, caregivers, which is a, um, a benefit to, to them, obviously, but it's also a benefit to society because we're not losing that skill set as a, as a society, and they're still there to provide that, that care to patients as they need it. How are the services that your company provides paid for? Is there a reimbursement through a patient's insurance, or does the hospital itself front some of these costs? So our, our payments come from a variety of arenas, as, as you might, might suspect. So some of the services that we provide for uh, patient care is billable and, and goes directly to the patient's insurance company and is uh, part and is, is uh, compensated in that way. Uh, sometimes we provide call coverage or coverage, as I mentioned earlier, for uh, private physicians in the community. And so some of those services may be billed directly to those private physicians. Um, and so that, therefore, that's another source of the revenue. And then, as you mentioned, the hospital themselves does pay for a portion of the program as well, helping to defray the cost of having that physician in-house 24-7 and, and being available to provide that emerging care 
as needed, as well as the other services that we discussed that we provide. And so the hospital does uh, pay for a portion as well. Are there any particular success stories that you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah, I think, as I mentioned earlier on in this discussion, one of the key components of uh, an OB hospitalist program is having an actively engaged OB hospitalist team uh, at the at, at, on labor and delivery. And so it's more than just having a physician there, it's more than just having someone be in the hospital. That's really not uh, good enough. And so one of the big focuses of our organization and others is to in- ensure that we have a strong physician clinical leaders who are part of these teams and are actively engaged with the labor and delivery unit and the hospital to make sure that the care that's being delivered to all of the patients is is improved. Um, and so we have we have lots of examples of that, but I can think of a program that we have in Texas where there were some challenges with the medical staff, you know, the the amount of engagement with the medical staff and the and the hospital, and then and thus the collaboration between that medical staff and the nursing staff wasn't at the level that we would want it to be. And the OB hospitalist program was implemented. We had a strong clinical leader who was a part of that team who then, you know, through building relationships, not only with the community physicians, but with the nursing staff and the hospital administration, was able to really change the culture. And I think that's the key, really change the culture on that labor and delivery unit to the point where that hospital was able to improve their quality. So you were seeing many of the same quality metrics that we talked about earlier, improving for that institution in particular. But you also saw them being able to expand services um, available to the patients. Most importantly, uh, allowing those patients to come and have a trial of labor after a cesarean delivery so that these patients who had a previous C-section, uh, for whatever reason, now had the opportunity to come to, the, to this hospital and attempt, and most of the time be successful at, uh, a vaginal delivery, which clearly is something that those mothers wanted and is a uh, better outcome for uh, for society as well to have more more of our patients appropriately delivering uh, vaginally. So really the key is, as we've seen across the country, but at this program in Texas, building those relationships and, and helping to change culture in these labor and delivery units and in these hospitals so that you can deliver the highest quality care uh, to the patients of that community. Great. Thanks so much, Dr. Simon. Did you have any final thoughts? No, I think, uh, you know, I think this has been a great uh, conversation. I think the questions that we've covered uh, do hit a lot of the highlights of the OB hospitalist uh, programs. What I would, you know, what I would say is that the implementation of an OB hospitalist program is in by no means a program that uh, replaces uh, outpatient or um prenatal care that's delivered in the community by midwives or by uh, physicians that were really an adjunct and a supportive service to to that care, helping to ensure that the patients, and that that should always be the focus of what we're doing, that the patients are the center of the delivery system 
and that we're doing everything we possibly can to empower them to have the best, safest delivery possible. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today on Managed Carecast. Thank you for having me, Samantha. To learn more about the OB Hospitalist Group, visit AJMC.com or see the show notes. To get in touch with us, you can email info at AJMC.com or follow us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us.